be seated at this time. When the roll is called up yonder, if you've been following along with our texts this week, you know that in a very real sense, the roll has been called up yonder for one of our sisters in Christ. Uh, Robin Olmstead went home to be with her Lord and Savior um, on Friday, actually Saturday morning, about 3.20 in the morning. Um, so we want to remember the Olmstead family in our prayers today. Um, Robin has been sick for a long time. Uh, it's been a diff- difficult haul for them. And even when she was relatively healthy, she was battling with the RA and all of those things that go along with it. Uh, so it's been a long time since Robin has been in good health. But you know what? She's in perfect health now. So we praise the Lord for where she is and the fact that she is no longer suffering and no longer in pain. But we do want to remember the Olmstead family. Um, and if you want to reach out to them, I know Rick would greatly appreciate your uh, kindness and your reaching out to them. And um, they would, uh, they just, Rick thought about coming this morning, but he's just, there's, he's struggling with a lot of things. Um, and as you can imagine, so are Stephen and Melissa, and Robin has other children as well that uh, uh, would be Rick's stepchildren, so uh, just a lot going on there in their home and in their life, and we will let you know when the funeral is. They're, they're not sure when that's going to take place yet. They, the, the funeral director has been out of town for a, a day or so. Uh, he'll be back. They'll be meeting, I think, on Monday to decide when and where and all of those kinds of things. Uh, Rick wants to do it here at the church, so that's probably where it's going to be. Uh, so we'll keep you posted on those details. But just please continue to pray for the Olmstead family uh, as they grieve now in the loss of Robin. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask his blessing upon our morning as well as for the Olmstead family. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you for the privilege of being here today. We know that there are several that are not here because of illnesses, maybe traveling, uh, but Lord, we lift them up before you today. You know each one of them, you know the needs that are going on in their lives, and specifically this morning, Father, we want to pray for the Olmstead family. We lift them up before you. We ask, Lord, that you would work in their hearts, that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them. Um, we know that there is a grieving process that they will go through. We know that their hearts are heavy and burdened at the moment. Uh, and knowing that Robin is no longer with them, uh, not coming home from the hospital, not coming home from a rehab uh, situation to get stronger and healthier, but she's, she's already in her final home. She's in heaven with you. Uh, what a blessing that is. We know that she's no longer suffering. We know that she's uh, no longer in pain. Uh, we know that she's no longer uh, sad uh, in her heart and struggling with those, those problems that she's had in the, uh, over the many years. And so, Lord, we are we are rejoicing in the fact that she's in your presence, but we also know how much she will be missed in their home and in their lives, and so we we pray for them today. We ask your encouraging hand to be upon them, that they may know your presence, that they may understand your purpose and your will and your reason and all of these things. And Father, we ask that as a church family, we may come alongside of them and encourage them and strengthen them and be a blessing to them in ways uh, that are tangible, that 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 they understand that they are a, a real part of our church family. Now, Lord, we commit our service into your 
your hands. We ask your blessing upon our time and your word. We gather together to worship you. We've done that now in song, and now we actually look forward to the time we will spend worshiping together as we open your word. Our prayer is that when we leave here this morning, because we've spent time in your word, we'll be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so you can take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the book of First Peter. We are still in chapter 1 of First Peter. There is so much in this very first chapter of the book of First Peter that we're kind of taking some time and we're camping out here because we don't want to miss anything from the pen of the Apostle Paul. So if we go back to the way I started our sermon last Sunday, you may remember we talked about children asking why. Now, if you were here yesterday uh, at, for our workday, you would have seen one of those why events unfold in life and in person, right, Colleen? Um, because I think it was Noah who asked Colleen what she was doing, and we were cleaning the lights out there. And so we had opened up the lights, and Colleen was climbing up on the ladder and cleaning. And why are you doing this? And why? And why? And why? And Colleen very carefully and very patiently explained all of the reasons why. And it ended with why. You know, but that's just the way it is, because that's the way our natures are, especially when we're that age. Um, and sometimes just because is the answer. Um, and that's the way it has to be left. Peter went on to explain our great salvation. Uh, why, why do we have this great salvation? Why do we respond in the way that we respond? And Peter is saying, because we have this amazing salvation, this wonderful salvation, we are to gird up the loins of our mind. We are to be thinking about it. We are to be pondering it. We are to be meditating on this amazing salvation. Um, and we are supposed to be thinking like Christ. The, the salvation that God has blessed us with should cause us to think and have the mind of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going back to the idea of our children asking why. You know, there's a time in life when children think that their mom and dad are just the best and they know everything. You obviously know that that's before they hit their teenage years, though, right? Okay, but when they're like five, six, seven years old, mom and dad, they just know everything. And, and you know... I can ask my dad any question. My daughter still calls me up, um, and she asks me, Dad, my car is making this noise. What do I do about it? Well, when's the last time you changed the oil? I'm supposed to do that? Uh, Yeah. Um, When's the last time you... uh, And so, but she calls me up. Dad, I I, want to put a new light in in my... apartment. You think I can do that? I said, well, you know, I ask her all these questions, but she, I love the fact that she calls me and she asks me, um, and, and she thinks that I have a lot of answers, more answers probably than I really have. Uh, but anyway, it's great to know that our kids think that we kind of know the things that are important in life. Um, you know the old, the old uh, one-upmanship game that used to go on as a child? My dad's better than your dad. My dad is, you know, uh, and, and here, in fact, I, I have one, a couple here, three boys in the schoolyard bragging to each other about how fast their fathers can run. The first boy says, my father runs the fastest. He can fire an arrow, uh, start to run, and get to the target before the arrow does. The second boy says, that's nothing. My father's a hunter. He can shoot his gun and be there before the bullet. The third boy listens to the other two and shakes his head saying, you don't know what fast is. My father's a teacher. He gets off at four and he's home by 3.30. 
There you go, Carl. There were three boys on the playground bragging about their dads. One said, my dad scribbles a few words, calls it a song, and they pay him 50 bucks. Oh, yeah? My dad scribbles a few words, calls it a poem, and they pay him 100 bucks. That's nothing, said the third kid. My dad scribbles a few words, calls it a sermon, and it takes four people to collect all the money. (laughs) Ours is in a box, so you can make your donation as you go out. Um, There's this thing about our children and our dads and our moms, you know, it's, it's, you know, just the one-upmanship kind of idea. Well, Peter wants his readers to know that his God is not just good, but that his God is awesome. And if he were having a, a, a debate or an argument with somebody else about their God, Peter says, listen, your God doesn't hold a candle to my God. My God is the one true God. My God is the creator of the universe. My God is the one who gave us this awesome salvation that we've been talking about. My God, there's no one that can compare to my God. Let's get into the text this morning and see what Peter says and why he says that our God is so great. You see the title of the sermon, it's the greatness of the Father, verses 17 through 21 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Would you stand with me as we read together from the screen, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Father, again, we ask your blessing upon our time in the word. Help us to uh, learn, help us to walk away with a better understanding of how great you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We see here in our text this morning that God is, is, well, you know, that word that we like to use just for God, he's awesome. We see he's awesome because he is a God that will, well, you and I, we pray to this God. We pray to him. And why do we pray to him? We pray to him because we know, we are absolutely convinced that he will answer our prayers. How many people this week have prayed to God and God has answered your prayer? You know what? Every one of you can raise your hand because even if he didn't give you what you wanted, he answered your prayer. He may have said no. Because he knows no is what you really need and what is best for you. He might have said, wait, because now's not the right time. And for some of you, maybe the ones that raised their hand, he might have said yes. Okay? Uh, but we have to trust God that he does answer our prayers. And isn't it great to know that we pray to an all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful God who always does what is right and always does what is best for his children? That's the great comfort we have in our prayer. So Peter says that we pray to our God, our great God. You might say, Pastor, I didn't see that in the text. 
It says in my Bible, if you call on the Lord. Well, when you and I, when we think about prayer, let's talk about that first, then we'll talk about the if scenario. When we think about prayer, we think about communication with the one true God, the God of the Bible, the God who is indeed the creator of the heavens and the earth. Prayer is so very important in the life of the child of God. In fact, you can't overstate prayer in the life of the child of God. I think sometimes we understate the importance of prayer, and sometimes we do that just by the fact that we don't pray as often as we could or should. I mean, the scriptures say pray without ceasing. Now, that doesn't mean that we're on our knees 24 hours a day, but that means that we're in the attitude of prayer and that our lives are in a state where when we need need to pray, we can go to God at any moment. Okay, so prayer is significant. It's vitally important in the life of the child of God. But we see here that Peter gives us the fact that we call upon God. And again, I say, you might say, Pastor, it doesn't say that in the Bible. It doesn't say that in my text because we read it together and we read the word if. What does it mean then when Peter says, and if you call on the Father? Peter's not posing a question here. Uh, in fact, the, the, question, the, the, the truth is that we do communicate with God. Every one of us communicate with God, hopefully on a daily basis. The word if, as we use it today, is more of a conditional statement. So um, I could have said if the Yankees won the wild card game, they could win the World Series. Because, I mean, after all, uh, there wasn't anything else to stand in their way. But they didn't. It's a conditional clause. Okay? Um, if... The Red Sox win, the cheaters won't go to the World Series again. You know, you can go on and on and on with these if statements, right? Okay, but here we go. Peter is not making an if statement. And by the way, I wasn't saying that I'm cheering for the Red Sox by that statement either, okay? Um, So what you need to know here is Peter's not saying if we pray. That word in, in Peter's language, the word that we translate if, would be more since we pray, since we call on the Father. Um, seeing that you call on the Father, understand these truths. As born-again individuals, it is our privilege and even our necessity to talk to our Heavenly Father. Remember Jesus, when he taught his disciples how to pray? He said to them, how, well, you tell me, how did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? You know, we call it the Lord's Prayer, right? How does it start? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Since you call on the Father, our Father, which art in heaven. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. In fact, his disciples wanted to know how to pray. They, they must not have been in the habit of praying, or must maybe it was different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament, but they had such a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that they wanted to know how to pray. They said, after all, John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Won't you teach us how to pray? And so Dr. Luke puts it this way. So Jesus, he said to them, when you pray, say our Father in heaven. Now, that's not a magic formula. And we don't have to repeat those words in prayer to God when we go to him in prayer. But it's just the idea of who we address when we pray. And we taught our kids from a young age, we don't pray to Jesus. Why not? Well, Jesus taught his disciples, when you pray, you pray to 
the Father. You pray to the Father, okay? But we also taught our children that we pray in Jesus' name. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? Because Jesus' death on the cross and his shed blood and his resurrection and the fact that he provides our salvation gives us the reason and the knowledge that God will hear our prayers and answer our prayers. If we don't, if we don't come to God in Jesus' name, then we don't have any expectation that he will answer our prayers. But because we have the privilege of being in Christ, we can come to God in the name of Jesus. The followers of Jesus, you and I, or the readers of Peter's letter, are to call on the name of the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Let's think about what prayer is for a moment. Simply defined, prayer is talking to God, right? We don't have to use fancy language. We don't have to use certain phrases. We don't have to go through an earthly mediator. Prayer is talking to God. Me pouring my heart out to God. You pouring your heart out to God. But there is a little more to prayer than just that. Because of prayer, you and I, the child of God, has direct access to God. You realize that, right? I mean... We like to have access to important people, right? Um, important people can solve a lot of our problems, so we think. I mean, if we had access to the governor or the president, we could go and say, hey, this is what you need to do to sort out the problem. I've got it all figured out. And they could listen to you, and they could do something about the problem. But you know what? We don't have direct access to those people. Even if we knew them, we would have to go through so many, so much protocol to get to even talk to them that by the time we got there, we probably would forget what we wanted to say. You see, we have direct access to someone even greater than the president. We have access to God. You and I can go into the throne room of God anytime we want, any any. Anything that's going on in our life, we can bring it into the presence of God and know that he hears us and knows that he acts on us. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says, let us therefore boldly approach the throne of grace, having confidence that he will hear us and he will answer us. He's eager to hear from us. Yeah, he wants to hear from us, not because he doesn't know. That's the amazing thing about prayer. When you and I pray, we don't go to God and inform him of what's going on in our lives. We don't say, hey, by the way, God, did you forget that such and such is happening? Absolutely not. He knows already. So why do we pray? Well, we pray because it makes the burdens of our hearts much lighter. We go to God and we leave our burdens there. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Yeah, and and it's a a way of fellowshipping with him. We commune with him. We talk with him. We, we, We feel better after we pray than God does because we've left our burdens in the hands of the one who can actually deal with the problems or accept the praise that we have to offer. So we have direct access to God. Listen to this, though. Because of prayer, you and I, our soul communicates with the one who created the soul. There's such a, the the prayer is so much deeper than just a physical conversation. 
It's soul communication. My soul communicates with the creator of my soul. Prayer is the primary way for the believer in Christ to communicate his emotions and his desires with God and, as Cindy said, to fellowship with God. You see, there's only one way for me to let God know what's on my heart. God created us as emotional beings. So when we're happy, we should tell God. When we're sad, we should tell God. When we feel like we're spent and we can't do any more, we should tell God. When we think in our foolishness that sometimes we don't need God, we should ask God to remind us how much we need him. Because we always need him. This is the way you and I, because we're emotional beings, we, we communicate with God our emotions. One of my favorite websites, you know what it is, gotquestions.org, has a great comment on prayer. They say this, prayer can be audible or silent, public or private, formal or informal. All prayer must be offered in faith, according to James 1.6, it must be offered in the name of the Lord Jesus, according to John 16, 23, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 8, 26. In the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, it goes on to say in the Got Questions article, Christian prayer in its full New Testament meaning is prayer addressed to God as Father in the name of Christ as the mediator and through the enabling grace of the indwelling Spirit. The wicked have no desire to pray, but the children of God have a natural desire to pray. You and I know how much we need God, and so we go to him because it is our need and it should be our bent. Prayer is common throughout scripture. We can go to the Old Testament, we can go to the New Testament, we can read about people who prayed. Those who are in a a relationship with the one true God have access to him through this avenue that we call prayer. So when Peter says, if we pray, if we call out to the Father, he's not really meaning it in a question. He's saying, since or seeing then that we have the opportunity and the privilege and we're in the practice of calling out to the Father, then understand the next statement. We understand what is next, the fairness of the one we pray to. God is always fair. (laughs) You know, I love sports, right? Is there, any, is there any question in your mind that I love sports? But you know what I never pray for? I never pray for my team to win. Because what if, I mean, I, I know some people say that God's a Yankee fan up in heaven. I, we don't even go there, okay? When I was little and I played sports, I didn't pray for my team to win. Because what if there was somebody on the other team praying for their team to win? How does that work? So I prayed for safety. I prayed for fun. Sometimes I took it a little, more, a little too serious. But you know, see, God is always fair. We go to him and we understand he will always do what is just. The one who practices the Christ- Christianity of the Bible, you and I, we practice this Christianity that's found in the pages of Scripture. There's only one person that we pray to. And that is our Heavenly Father. The Bible never instructs followers of God to pray to anyone other than God. Peter wants us to know about this one true God. 
and the privilege that we have of praying to the one, as he puts it, who judges without partiality according to each one's work. Why would Peter talk about in the, that in the context of prayer? Well, it's a bit difficult to understand, but what Peter is saying here is that God does not play favorites. Okay? God never plays favorites. This is, this is a great picture in the book of 1 Samuel about this idea of what Peter is saying here. 1 Samuel records the choosing of David to replace Saul as king of Israel. God sent Samuel to Jesse's house, and he said, In Jesse's house is the next king. I want you to anoint him, and I want you to tell him that he will be the next king of Israel. So, as would be the practice of the day, Samuel says, I want to meet your children. So, Jesse calls out what? The oldest one first. Okay? And he presents him to Samuel, and Samuel doesn't have that confirmation from God that he's the one. So, he goes to the next one, and so on, and so on, and so on. And all the way down, he goes through all the children that are there, and, he, and, and, and Samuel thinks every one of them, may, hey, this guy will make a great king. He's big, he's strong, he's handsome, he looks the part, he should fit the role perfectly. No, that's not the one God says. No, not, not him. And he gets down to the youngest son. And well, even before he knew there was one more son. There's there's no king here that God has chosen. And so Samuel looks at Jesse and he says, got any more? He's already seen 11. You got any more? Because the one that God has chosen is not here and he says he's coming from your house. So who's left? Well, we have the youngest one. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. Well, call him in. We got to see him. We got to look at him. So he calls in David, who's ruddy in complexion, which gives us the idea that he's young and, and he's just not of age yet and all of these things that you know, people would throw up as objections. Uh, and God says, he's the one. And Samuel's got to be going, I don't understand. He's so not kingly. How does this work? And, and what was God's response The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. That's all of the other ones. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. None of those other 11 had a heart to be the king, but David had a heart to be the king. And we see that play out later on because the scriptures tell us that David is a man after God's own heart. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. We know that he wasn't. He committed some big sins, as we would might call them. But you know what? He still had a, man, he still had a heart that was exemplary of the heart of God. So Samuel then chooses David, he anoints him with oil, and he sends him out. You see here, God doesn't judge the way we judge. God doesn't look at things the way man looks at things. God is an impartial judge. Listen to this quote, uh, a quote from Peter himself when he was preaching to Cornelius and his household about whether or not God is partial. He said, um, In a truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. You know what he was talking about there? Remember, Cornelius was not a Jew. And God sent Peter to Cornelius' house after this vision of unclean animals. And God said, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. No, I can't do that. 
I'm a Jew. I'm a clean person. I can't eat. Those are unclean animals. And what did God say? What God has called clean, do not call unclean. So God sends Peter to Cornelius' house, and, and he's preaching to a Gentile. And Peter has to wrap his mind around that. He has to come to terms with the fact that this Christianity, this church that God, Jesus is building, is not going to be made up of just Jewish people. Jews didn't like non-Jews. You have to understand that. And so when Peter is preaching to Cornelius, it had to be God sending him there because it wasn't something Peter would do of his own accord. He gets there, he preaches, and as he's preaching, he says, I perceive. And Peter's like, where are these words coming from? Because I'm not sure that I'm convinced that God is not a part, God who shows partiality. But the Holy Spirit instructed Peter, you must tell them, you must understand yourself that God is not a God of partiality. God is not just simply teaching and preaching and calling Jewish people to be part of the church. He's opening it up wide to all of mankind. When Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he wasn't talking about just a Jewish church. In fact, the Jewish people have been set aside and the church has come in now and are the agents that God is working through in this moment in time. He's not working through the Jewish people at this point in time. He 